good. Let's begin here. Um, as a human, it is easier to be sad than glad. As a human. Uh, easier to focus on the negative than the positive. This is a, a human condition. Even for those of us who are a bit more positive, sometimes that is a protective mechanism uh, against the things that are negative that we feel. We want to just suppress that. And so whatever you think of the origins of human beings. I myself am a bit more of a skeptic about the evolutionary theory, but evolutionary biologists tell us the human brain is hardwired to focus on the negative in our field of vision. So we evolved, they say, and they argue on the plains of Africa, and our ancestors survived uh, by looking out onto the horizon and to look at any kind of threat to make sure there wasn't anything that was out to get them. So whether that interpretation of the data points of science is right or not, there's no doubt that we as humans are a bit more negative in the way we think about things. So I came across a neuroscientist study, and it said this, that it takes three seconds for negative memories to be imprinted on our brain. And yet it takes 14 seconds for positive memories to be imprinted on our brain. Uh, Rick Hansen, who's a, uh, a psychologist, he said that the mind is like Velcro for negative experiences and like Teflon for positive experiences. It's much easier to remember the things that are negative than the things that are positive. Our brains are bent toward all that is wrong within the world. And we can, we can list off those things much easier than we can the positive things. And, and you can summarize that into one word, and it's sin. It's the reality of the brokenness that we feel and experience. And you add to that, we live in a world that is under assault under the three enemies of the soul, the flesh and the world and the devil, and those things play into our negative bent. And then you add to it the 24-7 digital news cycle, that is an economic model uh, profiting off of this negative bent. And you add it all together, and it can be a real struggle for us to see the good and the beautiful that is before us. And so as Jesus ends this discourse that we've been in, in in John 14 and 15 and 16, he's going to end by inviting us into something very specific. And that thing he invites us into is Joy. This invitation is joy. He's been navigating through these last several weeks as we've been going through John 14 through 16 through uh, spaces of courage and uh, comfort and a call for uh, dependence. And as we finalize this section, we see an invitation that he gives to us, which is this, to choose joy. So this morning, as we look at the text, we're going to be invited into choosing joy Together, We'll be in John chapter 16, starting in verse 20. It says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into what? Good. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, 
but I will say I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, and that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So the first point I have is this, that suffering is a painful part of the human life. He says, you will be sorrowful. He says that. He didn't pull any punches. He says, you're going to weep. You're going to lament. You're going to experience sorrow. The Bible is just so wise and so clear and so helpful to us. I'm not sure if you were taught growing up that life is going to be hard. Even for many of us in the church, some in the church are sold this view that life gets easier when you follow Jesus, or you will get what you want if you follow Jesus, and it's not true. Life is hard. Jesus fills the pages of the Gospels with a vision that life will be hard. If you go back to a few chapters in John chapter 11, we spent some time here um, this last week in our Bible study and several weeks ago as we've navigated through the series in the Gospel of John. We found that Jesus experiences firsthand sorrow. One of his dearest friends had died. His name was Lazarus. His burial was, uh, had occurred and, and Jesus shows up after his death and he sits with Mary, his sister, and he weeps the sorrow of life and the pain that sin has caused and he feels the effects of it and in response, Jesus, the one who holds all together and knows all things, he weeps with sorrow. See, Jesus is acquainted with our suffering. He's well aware of the pain that we experience. Dane Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he says, he is, Jesus is just as open and tender in his embrace of sinners and sufferers as he was on earth. But to this day, Jesus is just as acquainted now as he was in the first century of our pain and sorrow. There's nothing we have or will ever experience that he has not tasted. He's aware of betrayal. He's aware of loss. He's aware of being misunderstood, disappointments, He's aware of demotions and loneliness, sickness and death. And he has a deep empathy towards his people. Suffering is a painful part of our life. See, in this world, he says, you will suffer. He's not surprised by it. He has wisdom for us to navigate through it. He says, you will lament. This world is hard. And yet the beauty of it is he doesn't end there. He could very easily be like, hey, it's, it's sorrowful. Sorry, you got to go by. But he doesn't end there. He moves on in the text, and he leads to the second point, which is this, that you can experience joy within sorrow. We're not just invited into the realities of sorrow, but we're invited into a posture of joy amidst sorrow. He says, you will experience joy, but he anchors that with this statement, sorrow will turn into joy. Joy and sorrow, they seem like antonyms. They seem like polarizing. They seem like opposites. But Jesus brings them together and he says, no, amidst sorrow, you can also experience 
joy. And in this section we just read, four times Jesus uses this word, joy. He says, your sorrow will turn into joy. What's crazy is if you go to the Greek translation of this word in the original language, it actually means joy. It just means what it says. It's joy. And so four times we see this word, joy. It means, uh, and so we have this, this word, this biblical word for joy is, is more than a happy feeling. It's more that it's not a personality type. It's not a temperament. It's a lasting emotion that comes from the choice to trust God and to trust his promises. It's a deep-seated inner gladness, a depth of assurance and confidence. It's not going to lead oftentimes to a cheerful behavior, but it's a cheerful heart that it produces. And those are different. I'm not talking about a, a behavior here. I'm talking about a heart posture of joy. It's not an experience that comes from favorable circumstances. Jesus says, knows that. He knows it's not just good circumstances that lead to good outcomes and good behaviors. It's not that. He says, amidst of sorrow, you can experience joy. And then he gives this example of, of childbirth. I have not experienced this firsthand, but I have been on the supporting side of it multiple times. Labor and delivery is, is one of the most beautiful, shocking moments that you can have in, in your life. The culmination where, where someone is born, is just profound and mysterious. I have three boys, and, um, and one of them, uh, you know, nine months passed, and, and my wife began to go through that. It is, it is the time kind of moment, and so we drove to Northside Hospital, got situated, the process continued as it should, Con contractions continued, and, and as she began to push, we discovered that... Uh, my, one of my son's umbilical cords was wrapped around his neck twice, and his heart began to decrease pretty substantially. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's like doctors came out of everywhere. I, I, I might have been delusional, but it was like a doctor came out of the bed, under the bed. I'm like, where did you come from? Come from the ceiling. I'm like, I don't know what's happening, but it seems like they're coming from everywhere. And they surrounded my wife, and they dealt with the situation. And then all of a sudden, my son was given to my wife. And that moment of, like, relief, after going through the reality of labor and delivery, that, those moments of, of exhale, of holding a child, something profound. See, those first moments when I first held my boys, they're amazing. They're filled with joy. They're an exhale. They're a relief. They're moments of, of peace and, and gratitude. There's no thoughts about anything else. There's no thoughts in those moments about anxiety of the future. That comes, but in that moment, not so much. It's just a moment of relief. And Jesus is referring to this. The suffering of labor is now gone when a, when a parent holds a child for the first time. He's using a, a common illustration that's used throughout the Old Testament of the travail of God's people as they go through suffering and on the back end receive the promises of God. One of those is in Isaiah chapter 26, starting in verse 16. It reads like this. 16, 26, 16, it says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs. When she is near to giving birth, 
So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to a wind, to winds. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Amidst this, this writhing, these pangs, birth, uh, joy comes. See, both in this life and in the culmination of the one to come, joy is available amidst suffering and sorrow. You can experience joy because joy isn't tethered to your circumstances, is Jesus' point. Which leads to the third point in John 16, which is this. Jesus provides two words of assurance. In verse 22, he says, I will see you again. And then at the very end, in verse 33, he says, I have overcome the world. These two words of assurances, we'll start with the first. It says, I will see you Again, John writes in John 16, 22. He says, I will see you again. Prior to this text, he said multiple times, you will see me again. And yet here he says, I will see you again. It's not meant to hint that the disciples aren't really going to see him and he's just trying to trick them like a bait and switch or something. But Jesus instead is, is seeing what he's saying here as much more fundamental to their relationship. Yes, they will see him again, but the thing that's grounding their relationship is that Jesus will see them again. See, the tethering of joy is not based off of them, but it's based off of him. We have a dog, a new dog. It's the first time I've mentioned this dog. This dog is named Benny. I have withheld him from you because there have been bets within my community group that I would talk about him sooner than I have. It has been 14 weeks, and I beat all odds, and so booyah. Um, when my youngest son, uh, Rowan, walks Benny, uh, oftentimes, that's my youngest son, and that's Benny, oftentimes Benny walks Rowan. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, that all of a sudden, when Benny's running and Rowan's following, and then somehow Benny, I mean, Rowan trips, and then Benny's just carrying Rowan. There's a big difference between Rowan uh, leading the way with Benny and me leading the way with Benny. With Benny, I am trying to teach him how to heal, trying to do all the things that I should do as a good dog parent. And I'm trying to make sure that he is not leading me, but I am leading him. Rowan cannot do that at this stage of his life. With me and Benny, with Benny and me, there is a, an authority and a care that my youngest son can't carry in the same way. Likewise, when Jesus says, I will see you again, it provides a level of confidence and care and control that he has that's designed to bring stability and assurance within the relationships that he has with his disciples. And if their relationships land on how they interact with Jesus, how devastating will it be when in just a few hours Peter denies Jesus? But if he knows that there's one that's holding him, that's bigger than him, then when he denies Jesus, he can know there's a level of assurance and confidence that is there. There's assurance within that. This is a point that Paul 
understood well in Galatians chapter 4 when he writes to the church in Galatia. He says this, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. What is he saying there? He's reminding this church that, yes, you know God, but I want you to know what's more fundamental than you knowing God is that God knows you. There's something stabilizing in knowing that God holds you and God cares for you and God is upholding you and God has, has this grasp around you that provides peace and assurance and confidence that goes beyond what we can do in our relationship with God. Yes, we're called to pursue God, but there is a knowledge that is healing for us when we know he's not going anywhere. He holds us and he cares for us and he's guiding us and he's protecting us. There's a level of assurance there that oftentimes can lead to a hearty amen and the way that it brings peace and comfort for us. So there's an assurance in knowing He says, I will see you again. I am holding this relationship together. And then he says this, take heart, this second assurance, take heart, I have overcome the world. He's inviting these disciples into being reminded of the fact that you can have courage because Jesus has overcome the world. Be courageous, he's saying. There is more than meets the eye. There's more than what you can see. And his resurrection, he has overcome. And he's bringing life from the, dead, from the dead in this world. See, a new day is dawning as Jesus overcomes. And now we live in a world by faith where we can trust that he's at work even though sometimes it doesn't look like it. He says, take heart, embrace peace. See the world with Jesus as king. See the one who is tender, who is gracious, who is a redeeming, healing, restoring, conquering king. See, Jesus, he's defeated the prince of this world. Jesus, he has regained the keys of this world and he holds them, the keys of death. He has produced a decisive battle and has waged war and he has won and he has triumphed. And because of that, we can take heart and knowing that he rules. See, when we become saturated, and a part of my hope when we gather week in and week out is that we would become saturated with a vision of Jesus as king over all. And that in that, that we would find comfort in knowing that we will not hold all things together. We are not the ones in charge. We do not have control, but he does, and we can trust him. See, this vision brings a sense of hope and rest. This vision pries our hands off of our lives and our expectations. In this life, yes, we will have sorrow. Yet take heart. He holds the keys and he will make everything sad come untrue. And so we trust along the way. So the question is, how do we become people who navigate this sorrowful world with a posture of joy? How do we do it? If we're prone to negativity, if we're prone to thinking about sadness more than gladness, how do we take steps towards growing in joy? Leads to my fourth and final point, which is this. Paul provides a tutorial on becoming a person of joy. If you flip over to your right, if you have your Bible with you, to Philippians or your app, you will find 
a small section in Philippians 4 that is a tutorial for us when it comes to how we engage joy. Because the reality is this, we are human, we suffer, we are vulnerable, we are fragile, we will die, we are well aware of these things. And we recognize that joy is not an emotion, but it's a posture that we seek to engage and grow. And it's an inner condition of the heart of Jesus that we take on as we apprentice and follow Jesus with our lives. See, our relationship to joy isn't passive. You won't become joyful naturally. I already mentioned that. You will naturally become a negative person. To grow in joy, it takes intentionality. It takes an active pursuit to grow because we are prone to what is negative. We are prone to what is sad. We are deformed in this way. And so Henry Nouwen says, he says, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. So Jesus invites us to be reformed as we've been deformed with practices as we choose joy. Richard Foster says this, he says, if we think we will have joy only by praying and singing psalms, we will be disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple good things and constantly thank God for them, we will be joyful. That is full of joy. So as we live in between the ages of the now and not yet with a brain that focuses on what is negative, how do we lean into joy? Let's listen to the words of Paul in Philippians 4. As he's in chains in Rome, he's learned to arrange his life around Jesus and he's learned to take on the yoke of Jesus. And he says this in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He begins with this command. He's already spent some time talking about the gospel on the front end. We, are, we get this throughout Paul's letters that we always get orthodoxy, understanding of, of God and who he is and how he's pursued before we get orthopraxy, how we practically live that out. He never twists it. He never invites us into walking out our faith before we understand how God has pursued us first. And so even still here, we get the same reality. And we get this invitation on the back end of this letter to rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. Martin Luther said, he said, a Christian should and must be cheerful, a cheerful person. And if he isn't, the devil is tempting him. So we're reminded to choose joy. And the first step to do so in this kind of threefold process of choosing joy, the first is to give thanks. Paul says in this text, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
There's a posture of rejoicing and thanksgiving that's found within this text to say heart of gratitude. I know it's not November, so you're like, why are we talking about gratitude and thanksgiving in February? It's because we need to be reminded of thanksgiving. It's a posture before it becomes a practice. It's a habit we have to seek to grow. And remember, it takes three seconds to allow a negative memory to be instilled into your mind. And it takes 14 seconds for a positive memory to be instilled into your mind. So it takes intentionality to grow into being a people of gratitude. Paul says it just a little bit later in the text. Um, He says he learned to be content. It was not just something that was in his temperament. He had to choose to learn to be grateful and to see God's gifts within his life. See, it's a habit to see the gifts of God before you. It is a habit that is learned to do so. It's a habit to redirect our minds when our minds go down those rabbit trails. And you know what I'm talking about. When all of a sudden, all we can see in the world and all we can see in our lives is what is negative and what we don't have and envy the things that people have that we don't have. And we allow gratitude to be the thing that pulls us out. So yeah, I might not have what that person has, but God has been so good to me. And you begin to preach to yourself all the ways that God has been good and kind and faithful and steadfast in your life. And it stirs your heart to be grateful. Something profound about giving thanks with a posture of gratitude. Learning to see your life with a different lens that everything you have is a gift, even babies. Everything is a gift. When it's three in the morning and they've woken you up yet again, like even still the gift that is before you. See, my life isn't your life and your life isn't their life, but your life is your life. And there are a thousand gifts that you can find in your life. So we want to become curious We want to look beyond the negativity and say, where have you been good to me? Because you have been good to me. And you begin to see the things before you. You begin to pull yourself out of envy. And you pull yourself out of comparison. And you find the gifts that are before you. I'm telling you, there's something beautiful about giving thanks. So we give thanks. We want to grow and to be a people of joy. Secondly, we draw near to God. In this translation, the ESV, it says, the Lord is at hand. There's another translation I like better. But it says, the Lord, which, what does this one say? The Lord is at hand. I like it where it says, the Lord is near. I love that phrase, that he is ever before us. He is always with us. His presence is with you now, and it's with you tomorrow morning on your commute, and it's with you in your meetings, and it's with you when you're putting your kids to bed, and it's, he's with you always. The Lord is at hand. He's approachable. Because of Jesus, he's approachable. He is um, available, and we can draw near because he is drawn near. And we enter into the source of joy when we enter into his presence. In Psalm 1611, it says, uh, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. If we want to tap into joy, we tap into the one who has the fullness of joy. Draw near to God as he's drawn near to us. We find joy when we rest in God. C.S. Lewis says it well. He says this. He says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. 
If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? And if we want joy, we lean into the source of joy, the presence of God. There is fullness of joy. The Lord is near, and because he's near, we draw near. Because he's near, we surrender to the one who holds all things together, and we trust him with our lives. In that posture, we find joy. So again, first, we give thanks. Second, we draw near to God. And third, we curate what you put into your mind. You curate what you put into your mind. What does Paul say here? He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure, whatever is lovely and commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what does he say? Think about these things. Invite us to curate the things that we put into our mind, to fill your mind with things that are good and beautiful. So, friends, what do you fill your mind with? Is this true of us? What messages do you listen to? What are the things that are forming you? See, the digital age has algorithms to fill our minds. Our minds are being filled. I don't know if they're filled with good, beautiful things that Paul is mentioning here. You remember that quote from Rick Hansen out of the gate where he says that the mind is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive experiences. So we have to counteract this reality to make sure that we're filling our minds with the things that are good and beautiful and just and commendable. The result of this is we seek to give thanks as we seek to uh, draw near to God, as we seek to curate what we put into our mind after years and years of doing this. The result of it is we find our mind beginning to be renewed, as Paul says. Or as scientists say, we see neuroplasticity beginning to take place, where our mind begins to shift towards the things that we put our, our mind on. See, slowly over time, as you and I rearrange our lives around Jesus, as we take on his yoke that is easy, as we learn from him, we will over time experience this buoyancy of joy in our soul. This is not something that you are or not. You may, uh, you may be happy by nature and lack joy, or you may be melancholic and filled with joy. There is not a, it's not an external behavior, but it's an internal posture of God's care and delight and pursuit of you that gives you this place of joy over time. Friends, we're invited to choose joy. And I would love to, even as we close our time together, to just create 
some space together as Trevor comes up and just to consider what are the areas of my life? Where has God been good to me? And just to create some space to consider his goodness and care. And so I would love to just take the next minute or two to just pause. Consider where has God been good to us? And then I'll close this out in prayer. Let's just consider those quietly together. <clears throat>